your screen? Nope. Yeah, you just do you. Hello, everybody. I'm Priscilla Stone, and welcome to Quantum Witch Cafe, your safe place to talk about anything paranormal, fringe, strange, uh, UFO, UAP, if you're fancy. Before I get to introduce our amazing guest, I want to say thank you to anybody in the live chat or watching on YouTube later. So I see Kat and Grandmaster. Thank you so much. You guys are always here, and I always appreciate your support. Um, I I want to say I'm also very excited to be back at this after a while consistently. So now I have four shows scheduled a month as usual. And if you're listening on Anomalous Podcast Network at audio only, thank you so much. Please give your feedback as you can. Like, side, like subscribe, share, all that stuff. So I'm going to go into our guest now, Mr. Tony Civilelli. And he is an amazing author. I'm going to let him introduce himself because I like people to tell me about themselves on this show. So, Tony, welcome to Quantum Witch Cafe. And uh, can you tell people a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and why you're awesome? <laughs> I don't know about all of that, but I can tell them a little bit about myself and what um, some of my um, research experiences, etc., have been in my lifetime of 25 plus years of researching the subjects of UFOs, USOs, or UAPs, if you want to be fancy, um, out-of-body experiences, remote viewing, um, consciousness, philosophical towards the end, that type of thing. And what I did, uh, Priscilla, is I prepared a little slideshow, kind of like a Reader's Digest, so it's kind of show and tell, so I can give people uh, a perspective, not only from the voice, but also a little bit of visual as well. So. Oh, I unmuted myself. So wonderful. Um, before we do that, can you tell me, um, we can do this later too after the, the slideshow, but I, at some point I want to hear about the vision for your book, Ambassadors to the Stars. Can we right. get that out of the way Good before question. I forget to ask yeah, you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Um, in my opinion, I started doing all these different things in terms of learning remote viewing, teaching remote viewing, learning the study of out-of-body experiences, having out some out-of-body experiences, a lot of research into the whole UFO, USO, UAP, uh, subject matter, and more. So I attended many different conferences. Um, sometimes I would lecture as well, but I started taking tons and tons of notes. Um, and I have like 20 of those Cambridge books, little books piled up and stacked. And all this stuff started coming together. And I started noticing, you know, back and forth uh, things that I would pick up with uh, interviews of different people uh, in terms of, you know, the whole UFO genre, uh, talking to many people, everybody from, you know, David Icke to Linda Moulton Howe to Giorgio, uh, you know, from uh, Ancient Aliens and Robert O'Dean and military people, all kinds of different people, Hollywood people, etc. So I just accumulated a lot of different data and I kept the references, you know, in terms of, you know, the books that I read as well, because I got a lot of books like you. I was an avid book reader when the subject came out and I'll get into a little bit more of that. So I started putting all these notes together and I wanted to come forward with my thoughts on, it on how it's all interrelated to some extent. So the vision for the book was to not only put my thoughts together and make the correlations uh, apparent in science and metaphysics and technology has a lot to do with this as well. And obviously, you know, in the end, it's all consciousness and it's all energy. Um, but to put it in a book and to be able to share it and to be able to get 
possibility of people who have an interest in any of the aforementioned subject matters without going into too, too much depth with each one, but definitely covering them all fairly well. I thought it would be a good idea to not only lend my thoughts and put them together, but also make a book out of it. So this way I could also go forward and communicate with different people and maybe do presentations, meet people like yourself who are kind enough to have me on your show, uh, radio shows, uh, live presentations, remote presentations, etc. And just make it to where if a person really has an interest in the subject matters that I just talked about, they could look at it and say, wow, this covers a lot of different subjects, so I can really get a handle on the whole UFO perspective, but it's much wider, and we talked about this before coming on the air, than people can imagine. There's a lot to it. You know, is it time travelers? Is it extraterrestrials? Is it interdimensionals? Is it black budget projects? Is it hoaxes? It's all of the above, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, and I got all that in the book, and I think there's Definitely people who want some of this information out and work hard at it. And I think there's the status quo that don't want this information out and kind of want to keep it as a status quo. But those who want the information out, in my humble opinion, don't want it out too fast because too much too soon doesn't work either. So it's kind of like a slow indoctrinating process over the course of my humble opinion of generations to get this information out. So each subsequent generation would be more open to this than the next. Wow, that's amazing. And you go into all of that in depth in the book. I recommend everybody getting it, um, even if you've been at this for a while. It's I just love books that bring everything into one place for us and things that we can show uh, people that are just kind of coming into the conversation, curious people, because it's a big it's a big bite to chew when you start looking into the phenomena for the first time, especially when you haven't really thought about it until now, which a lot of people are doing. So without any more of that, hello, JJ. Are you JJJJ? Like, I miss you if you are. It's so great to see you in the chat. We're going to get to uh, your slideshow. So I'm going to add your beautiful slides to the screen and stream and you just, you do your thing and, and uh, be as descriptive as possible in case somebody's listening on audio. And if you're listening on audio, the link to this YouTube is in the description for the audio as well. Okay, well, thank you, Priscilla, for having me on this show. Um, I was always looking forward to it. We set it up um, roughly about two months ago uh, to be on the Quantum Witch uh, Cafe here. And this is all in my humble opinion. And at the age of seven, something odd happened to me when, when I was a youngster. It was a school night. And I remember going to sleep and I shut my eyes and literally three, maybe five seconds later, I opened them and my mother came into the room and said, okay, you got to go. You're, you're a little late here. You know, you got to get ready for school. And I'm like, I just closed my eyes. And she said, no, you got to be going for school here. So she cracked the curtains and I could see it wasn't what it, I thought it was of just several minutes ago, which, which I thought, you know, I, seconds ago, actually, which I thought. And I'm like, how can this be? I, I just told her, I said, you know what? I just closed my eyes and it can't be morning. She said, no, you just had a good night's sleep. And I remember thinking to myself at that age, man, I've had good night's sleep before, but never anything quite like this. So right then and there, something had been in the back of my mind and it was I was curious then as a kid, but I never really looked into it or anything like that. But I just knew time itself was not quite what we thought it was. There had to be something else that happened that, that you know, and 
a matter of seconds, all of a sudden that happened. Um, I kept the curiosity up a little bit. And what I did was I took this independent reading class in high school. And so we forward fast to that. And I got the book that many people are obviously familiar with, uh, Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Donneken. And I had to do a report on it as well. And I could use some index cards. And I remember reading it and thinking about you know, all of Eric's theories about you know, he used the word what if and maybe you know, he didn't he pushed it, but he didn't overly push it. He asked a lot of it in question-like manners. And so when I gave the report, I had a bunch of index cards, but I really didn't need them. You know, when I gave the report, I just rambled off and it was to the teacher. It was, you know, just an independent uh, reading class. And so I just spewed off a bunch of the different things that Eric talked about. And I asked my teacher, so why isn't more of this out? My teacher really didn't have any type of answer for that. He just felt, you know, you know how my intensity was and my passion was at, a, at such a young age about the subject matter. And so I got into, you know, work and everything else and some uh, graduating from high school and some college and bought into a business and somebody gifted me a book and it was called Embraced by the Light by Betty Eadie. And that book I felt was quite interesting as well. And I remember one chapter really stood out to me because so it was uh, Other World, I believe it was called, where the spirit guide took uh, Ms. Edie, who had a near-death experience, and toured her to some different worlds that had different technologies and different things and structures. And some were similar, I guess, to like where Earth was as well in our past. And that they had told um, that some of them had traveled to the Earth as star travelers. But the other thing that was odd is a lot of the memories that she had for that particular chapter that she wrote, she thought she felt they were taken away from her. But that rang a bell and made me connect. Um, you know, I like to connect dots to the uh, Chariots of the Gods book as well. Fast forward from there, uh, I still had some of an interest. It was in the back of my mind. Again, I was running a business as well. I was fitness industry, and there was this on Fox TV, the alien autopsy fact or fiction. I remember watching that yep. and looking at it. Yeah. Is, I taped it. it. I put a tape inside the VCR, and I put, like, some tape over something and recorded it because I thought it was going to be real. Right? I was like, it's happening, guys, already <laughs> in 1996. And I remember watching this and I thought, you know, I don't know if this autopsy is legit or not. I mean, it looks like it could be. But then I started getting into the uh, listening really deeply to the people that were interviewed, people like Frankie Rowe, Jesse Marcel Jr., and others that were all part of the, you know, the alleged Roswell UFO crash in 1947 of July. And I felt I always had a pretty good judge of character. To me, they came across very sincere, that something definitely happened and some of their parents were involved with it, whether it was a firefighter at a you know, the retrieval area for a brief period of time, or it was Marcel collecting the debris and showing it to his son who was interviewed on the show, Jesse Marcel Jr. And I thought there was something to that, so that kept you know strong with me. Um, and then as I got more and more into reading, I started getting different books out on the subject matter. Then I started um, taking trips. I took a trip out to um, Groom Lake in uh, 1999, and there was the infamous uh, Area 51 that at that time did technically not, uh, not exist until they came out with a little bit of information about it later. And I remember at that particular um, area, I was out at what was called the black mailbox, which was the white mailbox, actually, at that time. 
And but before we got to that, because I went out there with a friend of mine who was basically a, a, a remote viewing colleague, and we saw something that was coming down from the sky into the ground, and then it would go from the ground back up. And this is an actual picture of it. It doesn't do the just of it, you know, but that's what we saw and took a picture of, and it was really fascinating to watch that. And um, after that, we took on this, which was called like war games. We were there uh, in the area up to the black mailbox and um, the people that went beyond the mailbox they were really chased away very fast jeeps came out chased them away but the people that were up to the, the box or in close areas they were allowed to be in that area and all of a sudden all of these jet planes were zooming across back and forth the sky and these fumes are going back and forth and i guess that's what they called war games but then i noticed something off of the side in the mountainous area there was these there was a blinking light and all of a sudden it would be in one area then it would be like two or three miles away and like less than a second it seemed like and then two or three miles away from there in another area and at the same time those jets were going over it i started thinking well this is almost like you know a ruse to kind of keep you kind of occupied with the noise and all the show that's above and then this thing's being tested out here on the side and i thought that was interesting my gut feeling told me that maybe it was something that was somewhat back engineered, maybe from where or what. It was definitely some type of test technology, but whatever it was, it was moving extremely fast. I mean, it had to be doing something in terms of bending the gravitational field and using some type of energies or something that are obviously not known or were not known in public at that time. But I do understand the secrecy behind things as well. So I try to keep a very objective uh, point of view with the whole uh, subject matter that I cover with all the areas. After that, I was a trip to Arizona in uh, 99 as well. Um, and I met an Indian guide there. And he, I just went there for the heck of it. And um, I met up with another friend there as well. And he gave us a tour of some different areas and talked about his, his name is Julio Rodriguez. And he talked about a UFO incident that took place in his life. Um, and that was in Hawaii. And I thought it was quite fascinating. And he talked a little bit about the subject with me. You could feel that I was definitely sincere and pretty passionate about it. So he shared his thoughts. And it was a nice hiking situation as well in terms of Sedona. And then I went out to Roswell, New Mexico in the year 2000, and I got to meet some of the people that were actually in that um, documentary that Fox TV put out. And I met with Mr. Walter Hout. He is the PIO, Public Information Officer, who wrote the article, you know, Roswell Army Airfield Captures Flying Saucer on Rants in, in Roswell, Roswell Region. And he talked to me, and um, again, you could sense my passion about it. And I um, basically listened to what he had to say. And something he told me that he had really never talked about and wasn't on the documentary is that he actually did see um, the actual debris and he said bodies. And then on his deathbed statement, you know, years later, he came out and uh, said this. Um, and I think it was his daughter who also conveyed the message as well. So I wasn't quite sure if he was just making it up at first, but he seemed sincere when he was talking to me because I'm like, well, you never said anything about this before publicly, but. I, I felt that, you know, he had something to say and he wanted to say it about it. And I never spoke about it until after the fact he came out about it. I also got help, I, you know, at different conferences and things. I met um, Command Sergeant Robert O'Dean and Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens, and they shared some thoughts and ideas and things that they had heard and learned while they were serving, you know, the country. 
and why these things are so top secret. And they both basically said that this is going on and that it is something that has to come out on a slower pace. But they both said it's, you know, sincerely that this had been going on in UFOs and probably ancient aliens, ancient astronauts, the whole 10 yards and different things like that as well. Um, I attended over 15 plus conferences from 1996 to 2010 and um, took a lot of notes. Like I said earlier, met a lot of different people, contactees, abductees, um, uh, scientists, uh, researchers, fellow researchers, et cetera, et cetera. And then I got into the whole remote viewing thing. Um, I got into it because I wanted to look at the idea of UFOs uh, from the whole remote viewing area. A brief history with that is back in the early 1970s, this is how put off and Russell Todd. Todd got met a couple times. Uh, and a psychologist named Charles Tart were into studying the paranormal and parapsychology at Stanford Research Institute, SRI. What they did is they brought in a East Coast psychic named Ingo Swan. Swan was a self-taught psychic and a very gifted one at that time. Um, he was also an artist and they brought him out from New York to the uh, West Coast and together they worked in a series of protocols and phases that went from the subconscious mind to the conscious mind to pen to paper and they produced psychic-like results and they called this remote viewing. Well, while they were in the process of doing this, SRI was also a think tank for various corporations, including the military, and the intelligence community got a hold of the group out of SRI, as the story goes, and again, we're getting Reader's Digest version here. They approached them and said, you know what, we've done a little bit of work on this ourselves. We're intrigued with it. Um, we would like to know, would you guys like a grant to take this, an exploratory grant to take this to the next level? And of course, um, Tart and put off and everybody else was like, well, yeah, we think we can, you know, take this to the next level. And so they did, they gave him a grant for quite a bit of money at that time, again, the early 1970s. And what they did with the money is they brought in several other so-called psychics. Um, they uh, brought in several, a couple of other scientists that well that had an interest in paranormal and parapsychology. They were open-minded about it. Within a few short months, the remote viewing procedures, as it was called, were tweaked. And then um, the military met up with them again and said, you know what, we're still interested and they wanted to know, do you think you could teach some of our people how to do this? And they said, yes, we think we can teach people how to do this because they were doing it a bit on the side, but now it had more structure and continuity to it. So to make a long story short on that part, they selected six people from a bunch of different people that they had interviewed and most of them had some type of paranormal experience in their life that gave them, a, you know, a hand or a little bit of a, an edge in this type of um, program. Some of them had near-death experiences, some of them had out-of-body experiences, some of them had seen ghostly apparitions, some of them had seen UFOs, etc. So the six initial people um, put forth efforts and there were good results that came with some of this. And some of this started to leak out into the general populace and the History Channel got wind of it. And this had been going on back and forth for nearly 20 years. It had different names. Um, Project Grill Flame, Stargate, Project Center Lane, and basically the era of Psy Spies was born. And they, and they spent quite a bit of money on this. And then, like I said, History Channel started to get wind of this and other people that were kind of turned away. But the History Channel made some ground with them. And they told them, they said, and this is one of the groups from um, some of the people that were participants from Project Center Lane. 
Thank you for Paul H. Smith for sharing that with me and allowing me to share that with others. And so the History Channel wanted to produce this documentary and the military wasn't against it, neither was Stanford because they figured if they tried to ignore it more, it would be more problems than it was worth, but they wanted to say on how it was put together and the History Channel was fine with that. So they sent out a gentleman by the name of James Schnabel. Schnabel was a tech editor, he was a science writer, he was also an author. So he started interviewing some of the people that were part of this program and he got really curious and interested in it. And he found out, you know, the Russians may have been even doing something like this or similar even longer than the U.S. It had Canadian ties, etc. And um, he started writing a book about it on the side. That's how, you know, interested he got into it. And the documentary came out in 1993 on the History Channel. It was called The Real X-Files, which coincidentally was the same year the TV series X-Files came out as well. And, That's interesting. Um, <laughs> Exactly. And then um, after that, the cat was out of the bag. So the military obviously had a backup plan. They did what they needed to do with it. And they brought in a third party, an outside party. And they came back and said, after you know a couple months of looking at it, so now we don't think it's worth the resources. We think we should just cut the program out. So they officially closed the program in 94, 95, somewhere about those, those that time frame or something like that. And so that's all for debate in terms of how and when and all that took place, but it was officially closed down from there. And Schnabel came out with his book, and um, I saw the documentaries. Um, I saw first, I saw what was on a Nightline TV show, and it was on roughly oh on Channel Seven. It was you know one of those late nights, and I never used to watch Nightline, but I just happened to keep a, catch a commercial about what it was going to be about this Stargate remote viewing project. So I said, that was pretty interesting. So I watched and I was like, huh, who would have thought this? The military was interested in psychics and psychic phenomena. So I kept in the back of my mind. So then I was um, channel surfing. And I never saw it when it originally came out, but I saw the rerun of it, of the TV uh, episode with the History Channel, The Real X-Files. And I remember watching that thinking, wow, this is the second time I've seen something about this. There's got to be something to this. And it was a little more in-depth than the first one because... It was an hour long and the nightline was a half hour long. And one of the interviews that Schnabel did with one of the ex-military remote viewers really hit uh, a, a you know, note with me. And he was talking about sometimes when they were looking at different targets, um, and these targets were things like uh, very secret, top secret type of targets, underground missile silos, uh, nuclear submarines, biological weapons depots, things of that ilk. They would come across these unidentified but controlled lights. The remote viewers would sense this, and multiple remote viewers would have it, um, not knowing what the other had. Uh, you know, when they did these uh, sessions, remote viewing sessions at different times. So they call them UFOs. And then I said, "Well, I got to get this book." So I got to go out there and get this book. And it was "Remote Viewers: The Secret History of America's Psychic Spies" by James Schnabel. And I looked for this book, and I, I went to several different stores. I couldn't find it. This was way before the internet shopping was on, and there was and no Amazon or anything like that at that time. Um, and again, it was uh, the 90s. And I did come across a second book called Cosmic Voyage. It was by a professor out of Emory University named uh, Courtney Brown, and he's a teacher of nonlinear mathematics and social sciences. And he teamed up with one of the ex-military uh, remote viewers, and they used the tool of remote viewing to look specifically at the idea of UFOs and potentially extraterrestrials visiting Earth. And I got this book on my hands and I thought, this is exactly what I want wanted out of the remote viewers book, only this is the in-depth part of it with just that subject matter. 
uh, in the consideration. So I bought the book. It was a good read, uh, interesting. Uh, at the end, it had questions. Um, you know, I answered some of the questions to my own satisfaction. And then I had my, my own questions and I wanted to get more information. So I called what was called the Farsight Institute in Atlanta, Georgia, that Professor Brown put together. And the secretary there was also a remote viewer herself, um, talked to me, answered the questions to my satisfaction. She could sense I had a serious uh, interest in it. And she asked me, said, Tony, do you think you'd like to take a course and learn remote viewing? You were opening classes to civilians. And I said, well, you know, I don't think I'm quite ready for this yet. And I remember some a thought came to me like, oh, it's like putting my foot in the deep end of a pool without learning how to swim yet. He said, well, if you do, Joe, just get back with us. And what we do suggest, you know, a course in meditation prior to that would be a good idea. So a couple of days go by and I wake up and I'm like, well, I want to take this course in meditation anyway. So I signed up for a course in Transcendental Meditation at the Maharishi uh, Vedic Schools. And it was about a six-week course. I went once or twice a week. And, and it was at a satellite school here on, out of the Metro Detroit area in Michigan. And it was in Rochester. And I took those classes and learned the discipline of Transcendental Meditation. And I still do it every day, uh, once or twice a day. And I had a history of doing prayer and because um, I was brought up in traditional Catholicism. But this was going way beyond that type of idea. And, you know, that's part of it, what I wrote about as well. So I don't want to get into all of that. And then I took a course in um, hypnotherapy. And um, after I got done with the course in Transcendental Meditation, I also read the book Cosmic Voyage a second time. And I think I got more out of it. I said, you know what? I think I can take this course now in remote viewing. So I called that, set up a time, went out there, paid X amount of dollars, went out to Atlanta, Georgia for a week-long course and took with this same this group of people here the study, the uh, voyage class of the introduction of scientific remote viewing. And it was quite a week. Um, I was one of the fortunate viewers that had a breakthrough session that kind of opened it up for a lot of the other viewers that it could be done and that um, stood with me at the end of that week i'll tell you what i was into fitness and training and all that type of stuff as well at that time because that was my daytime job running the business a fitness center and doing nutrition things with that as well and also a personal trainer i thought i was in really good shape but that week wiped me out and i didn't miss lift anything heavier priscilla than a pen that week wow and that'll yeah. happen to people right when they're exercising their mind yes, and they don't realize yeah. it's gonna like make them feel a certain way because they think to them, it just looks like, oh, you're just laying down or sitting there, but like you, you feel it the yeah, next day. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mentally, you're, you're working hard. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. And so obviously that took place. And um, at the end of the week, they said, you know, we're going to have more advanced courses or advanced courses later on. Um, we're still working with beginners. We're still getting structured with this. But they said if you had an interest, you know, maybe learn something more along the lines also that can complement this as well from the Monroe Institute, learning about the out-of-body experience. So from the Farsight Institute in Atlanta, Georgia, I went next to the Monroe Institute in, uh, several months later um, in 1997 as well and took the first course in learning about the out-of-body experience and both remote viewing and the study of the out-of-body experience maintain gaining information from your five senses of taste, sight, touch, sound, and smell without being there firsthand and bringing the information back and recording it. 
Um, again, another eye-opening experience. I also learned the Monroe Institute was also a re, uh, prerequisite for all the military remote viewers when they first init initially started as well. So after that week-long course, I went back to the Monroe Institute in 1998 for another week-long course. This one had some emphasis on remote viewing, and it was a more advanced course of learning of the out-of-body experience. It was also two guest speakers there that were doing partial instruction as well, Mr. Joe McMonagle and Mr. Barry Atwater, who also were part of the military remote viewing unit, the famed units of Stargate and Center Lane, et cetera, et cetera. And I picked up a lot of good tidbits from them in terms of remote viewing and the, the discipline with it and some of the helpful tips were used along with my own uh, sessions, etc. And then I went back again to the Farsight Institute in 2002 and took another more advanced course in learning uh, remote viewing and also to how, how to teach it and present it to people. And between uh, 1997 and 2003, so I, I literally remote viewed or monitored hundreds of targets. Now, I'm not going to say I'm an expert on it, but I have had some successes with it, and I've had some non-successes with it. I, uh, I understand the parameters of it and how it's put together, especially scientific remote viewing, and so that's why I teach it as well. So really quick, um, before we go on, sure. one quick question is, somebody put, um, somebody has a question, a uh, grounding in light. And then also my question is, what is, what is the difference between scientific remote viewing and remote viewing? Like, gen is, is there a, a difference or? I'll get is... that one in a little bit. I'll take Oh, okay. We're, we're done. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah. The grounding in the light, we were taught that a little bit of it mm -hmm. at the Farsight Institute, but more so at the Monroe Institute. It's important because you're opening yourself up to other realities, you know, when you have the out-of-body experience and even to a certain extent remote viewing. So you ground yourself and I, before I always teach, we always surround ourselves like with the, we did at the Monroe okay. with white light and you connect with what we call source, um, right. whatever you want to call it, higher state of self, God source, universal creative source, nature. You ground yourself, you protect yourself, you visualize the light all around you. And so this way it's kind of, um, a protective procedure as well. Okay. And it's just done, I think, in in good faith because I think it's the best way to teach any of these particular disciplines. And I think when you do learn these things, there are other areas that can come into play or open up your mind, and you always want to be protected by it. Okay. Um, and if you're if you're strong and you're ground, you're good. You know, that's that's the main thing. Yeah, and, it's very interesting that they teach that. Um, a lot of yes, different. So I think that's why the person in the um, cat asked that question. I just wanted to get it before we got into this cool. No, I appreciate that. Question, this next Kat, set you. of slides. Yeah, and we're close to through with this. And you know, one of the projects I work with, ninety percent of the remote viewing stuff I did had nothing to do with the paranormal or parapsychology. It was just basic targets that were, which you would call, you know, targets that you could confirm. You know, the other Very targets cool. that are not confirmable, you know, you have to, they're called esoteric targets. You don't know, but okay. you just have to go by. That's why the military always did multiples, you know, of like sessions, not always, but often where they would get different people, different viewers looking at the same target, blind to the mm. target, and not knowing what the target is. And yet you could, we did this at the Farsight Institute too. We would compare our notes and you'd be surprised like when we had a target we were all blind to the target and we had our own little cubicle to do the sessions and within a half hour to an hour when the sessions were done 
we put all the sessions at like a table in the center of the room and we would go through the instructors would go through one uh, student sessions at a time and you'd be surprised at how many people are correlating bits of pieces of information that were not really important things but yet part of the target you know okay like, well this light was broken in this area you just interesting don't get two or three people doing things like that unless there's yeah something so right that, that yeah so it's just and that may not have had to be anything to do with the just of the target but was part of the target type of thing so you get the idea and your listeners and your followers will get the idea as well and one of the but i did work on some parapsychology paranormal targets and one of them is that i did was the uh, asked to participate in a blind remote viewing project in 2010 evidence of artificiality on mars and um, we had these targets. They were taken by the Mars orbital camera, you know, image M1100099 uh, from JPL and NASA. And we did not know what these targets were, but we remote viewed these targets. There's three different targets there. And we got, and when I say we, I was one of, I think, a dozen, maybe 11, 12 people selected from three different schools of remote viewing, Hawaiian Guild, Controlled Remote Viewing, which is Lynn Buchanan's school and um, scientific remote viewing, which is Courtney Brown's area. Um, and, and I respect all of the military remote viewers. All I have to say is thank you for uh, so many of them for sharing. I mean, there's some people like Paul H. Smith and Russell Targ and uh, Professor Courtney Brown and Ed Gaines and Lynn Buchanan. I've met several of them at different conferences, uh, RV conferences, Irva conferences, etc. And we've gotten into you know, the different things and the pluses and the minuses and the ideas and that type of thing. But we had this project, Artificial AMRs, and we came up with a lot of good information as far as what it was. And for your listeners that want to see more about it, there's a good, roughly about 12, 13 minute video of it where Professor Brown uh, presented it to the 2011 Society for Scientific Exploration Conference in Colorado. And it has some of the people's works on there. Again, I was fortunate enough to be one of the viewers asked to work on the project, and it was quite fascinating in terms of results. And real quick for your viewers, I mean, basically something is being done on Mars at that time that we were asked to look at it. Some type of terraforming structures, underground water system, irrigating system, etc. I didn't get, and then nobody wow. got a real, you know, gist of an extraterrestrial feel, but that's all, you know, um, mm relative and because some things may you know we may have alien dna in ourselves and we can't tell it but others cannot often can tell it but what we got was some type of a project an irrigation system with water a dome structure people working and that they were on that planet i thought basically i thought i was in hawaii with the drawings i do because it was about wow there was rock formation but yes but yet there was definitely people working there was definitely stuff going on underground and it goes into much more detail and the science behind it etc if somebody wants to look at that project with slides and different things um that mr brown professor brown presented um then so i have that at my website very cool and his website is linked guys his website's in the description so um just so you guys know that don't go look at it now because we're you want to don't want to miss this but but it's there after on his website the question <laughs> i ask is how does remote viewing work i get that right. asked all the time there's there's no definitive answer there's a lot of people who think they have the answer right now and they're just as sure of their answer right now as some other different people were of 10 years ago and other people were so sure of it 20 years ago we have ideas about it but you know, I will go into a little bit of the science behind it. It's like the double slit experiments back in the early 1800s. Um, I think it was uh, 
Thomas Young and uh, a couple other different sciences. They take an electron gun, shoot out an electron. It will go through one slit. It would remain an electron. But then when they put two slits up there, the electron sometimes would split up, go through both slits. Here we go halfway. And then it would come back and become one electron again. Now, electron is something that circulates around an atom. Several atoms equal molecules, molecules equal mass, so we go mass molecules to atoms. And inside the atoms, you have electrons circulating around, protons and neutrons are the, the center of it, you know, the, the, the nucleus of the atom. And it goes even further than that. As I mentioned before, it goes into things like plasmas, uh, string theory, M theory, E8 theory, Quantum mechanics is all part of, this, part of this quantum entanglement. It's all part of what this is. But they did this experiment, and they did it more in more detail in 1927 out of the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, Niels Bohr, I think it was, and maybe Werner Heisenberg came up with the idea that, yes, they had to be communicating because how does an electron go through and split itself up, go through two different splits, come back again and become one phase or one particle in space time again. Is it a particle? Is it a wave? You know, it's that uh, that axiom question, which which of the two is it? The answer really is it's both. You know, it, it has some type of an, a, an energy consciousness or something. There might, there, at those quantum levels, there's a lot more going on. So that is part of what I think, you know, the idea of remote being is that part of us can go outward and bring data back. Um, others are, you know, you've heard the stories of twins, you know, something could happen to one sibling and another one could be many miles away. Guy Lynn Clayfair put together this book, other yeah. references, Carolyn Corey, Nassim Harami, and Clee Irwin, and many others. And the other twin, the sibling would know right away if there's something in impactful, something with emotion to it, they can pick it up. There's different cases that are in this particular book that that happens. So there's got to be some type of an electron interface of some kind going on there. Um, I really like Jacques Vallée. I met Jacques oh, yes. Vallée at one of the conferences as well, at the Irva conferences in 2007. And he describes it, and very few people know he had a bit to do with the whole remote viewing uh, process when it was put together as well, along with Swan and Targ and put off and, and uh, other people. But he was there for part of it as well. And um, he has a computer background, he has a science background, astrophysics, things like that, etc. And I like this saying right here, Priscilla, I propose to describe consciousness as the process by which informational associations are retrieved and traversed. The illusion of time and space would be merely a side effect of consciousness as it traverses the associations. Wow. I thought that quote was quite definitive, um, and he used it, you know, in describing the idea of consciousness in his book, Dimensions, that we're multidimensional beings, actually, and we're shifting back and forth in these different frequencies that we call dimensions of existence, and ours happens to be the third dimension. Nassim Haramein describes the universe's energy as all-encompassing. It connects by means of fluid-like waves at the smallest level. He calls them Planck waves, as other scientists do as well. He calls, it dynamic, he calls them dynamic quantum fluctuations. It's not fluid in the traditional sense of water, per se. Hence, it cannot be perceived by our five senses. Objects that appear solid move through space on this quantum fluctuating field like a boat that does move on water idea of that could be something like an example of this in the field of more subtle sense think of a hawk uh, or a bird flying at times there's no flapping of the wings as the animal is simply gliding and yet can change and navigate its direction 
This gliding from a scientific standpoint using gravity should not be possible. Yet, as another scientist infers earlier, the bird, which has an innate ability to do this, is not really flying in the open air, but it is flown by surrounding forces, that quantum wave field, and it then navigates its direction like a boat is navigated on water. So, food for thought. That's amazing. <laughs> That's an amazing um, analogy. I haven't heard it like um, summarized so um in such a good way it's it's you have it all right there so you guys will have to go back and like take pictures of these slides or something and put them on your phone so you can read them later <laughs> and i also have at my website on the links page same as the mars project a link with russell Todd. you talked about the reality of esp which is obviously extrasensory perception his involvement with the remote viewing procedures in the school at stanford research institute and the military's involvement etc it's a good half hour roughly um video Two good videos on remote viewing there. Um, back to what your the one question was, you know, the styles of remote viewing, they're all based on the, you know, whether it's scientific remote viewing or controlled remote viewing, and the wise guild remote viewing, or whatever you want to call it. Most of these RV styles are based on the original program on the Stanford Research Institute and that the military used. So it's kind of like, you know, the old saying, if it's built broken, don't, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But everybody came up, you know, different people came up with different styles and might have had strengths in one area, add something, subtract something. So you came up with different schools of it and different people made businesses of it. And all is based off the military people, you know, the, the X model that came out of the program that wanted to bring it out to the general populace. And I'm thankful of that. And a lot of them, again, shared, again, with me, their thoughts and ideas. And so different schools came about. Some of them tweaked in certain areas, some of them changed things in other areas, but they're all based on the program out of Stanford Research Institute where it originally all started. And one program is not that you know better than another. I think when it gets down to like when I teach it, I want to make sure people are comfortable with me and that they just have an open mind and that they're willing to let the information and data flow to them after they discipline themselves on the procedures through the protocols and phases that are taught for this particular way. And what I teach is called basic scientific remote viewing. And I also looked in the idea of USOs. That is what tipped me, and you had read the book that I put together, Priscilla, and thank you for that. And that, you know, Obviously, things are flying in the air, space, etc. But you know, it's got to be more than just that. What, the, what really tipped me off the fence of what was that this stuff was going on was the unidentified submerged objects, because Earth is seventy-five percent water, seventy percent water at least, and the oceans are almost alien to us even right now. And a lot of those Navy people that I interviewed and different stories about USOs that I've gotten, um, you know, to share with other people that. Have, uh, interviewed witnesses, etc. That really brought it forward to me to say, you know what, this is definitely going on. And then I got into it even more. I talk about it in the book and people say, well, this is all, you know, people with strong faith. And I'm not saying yes or no with any faith, but it's all demons and things like that. Well, what the heck would demons from other dimensions need UFO bases in the water for? It didn't make any sense. Exactly. It doesn't mean there's not <laughs> negative energies out there. Right, right. That. But what I am It's not as simple, is, right? It's not as simple yeah, as demons and angels all anymore. Of the above. <laughs> You know, there's, there's more to this. There's definitely nuts and bolts and there's definitely dimensional processes and all those different things, but there's definitely beings that have been coming and going 
So it's probably, in my humble opinion, the beginning of our time, and maybe they've had a hand in things in terms of the earth and, and, and life and etc. And also time travel and different things like that. And then I got into it even deeper with, I wanted to investigate is there a connection between near-death experiences and UFOs or UAPs? And not all do, but there were definitely stories that involved that. And Raymond Fowler was a longtime UFO researcher, a former of the uh, Air Force as well. Um, he was also good in regressive hypnosis. And in his book, Watchers 2, Exploring UFOs and a Near-Death Experience, he talked about, you know, towards the end, he accumulated the data and said the UFO and near-death experience connection seems to be telling us that whoever controls the UFO phenomena is intimately connected with the afterlife of human beings. This is a deeply profound revelation with ever-escalating implications for humankind. Whatever the reason, which may be beyond our comprehension, what is called alien interaction, seems to be part of a constant interplay between life here and life in the hereafter. For if we take and integrate the total characteristics of the UFO and near-death experience phenomena at full face value, the bottom line implication is death may be the ultimate UFO experience. So I think there is a connection with some of the beings that are from a higher realm of existence. And if they need to get into our dimension of existence, they may need a type of nuts and bolts type of thing to bring people back and forth at times that is like a trans-dimensional technology. I think, you know, we are not just physical beings. There's other aspects of us that actually are also taken at times at, at various um, stages in our life. And then sometimes we actually have to see the physicality of it a little later as we're growing up or getting wind of it or learning of it, or we have a sighting. But it may start at another level of consciousness with a lot of us. With that said, there is more. There are also Fowler and the other UFO research acknowledge that some other abduction contact cases are more negative. Here, extraterrestrial time travel or black ops may be involved as well. It has been reported that so-called gray aliens are often more like worker bee cyborgs in this particular situation. There's a lot of things to this. The biggest thing, I think, is that there's just not one answer to it, and there's a lot of dis and misinformation. But as one um, UFO researcher and contactee told me, there's no need for disinformation unless there's information. So, well, Yeah, that's a great way to put that, too. Yes, and towards the end of my 25 years of research and to now, I've become more, much more philosophical about it. And you know, that's how I end the book. And it's basically, I think there's more to all of us than meets the eye. That's why I like to teach remote viewing because when people have some successes at that, they, they get the gist of it because there it is right in front of them, the scientific phases that keep the conscious mind occupied while the information comes to and through to the subconscious mind, they realize that. But as we talked about earlier, Priscilla, I think there's this one, in my humble opinion, universal creative source consciousness that constantly plays itself out, kind of like on the infinity loop, and what we call different dimensions and what we call that can be measured time and space. But not everything is in time and space, and as the higher the dimensions go, the less alien anything becomes, and the more interplay you have in terms of what you can go and do in terms of in the physical. Um, I think there's, at, we call them different planes of existence, astral, etheric. I think as we go more into these higher planes of existence, we become more of a group consciousness. I think as we become more telepathic, and which will happen in time here on Earth, um, 
we can take that stuff to another level. I think we're all interconnected. I think we become more of a group consciousness and work as units as the dimensions get higher. It's like the type zero to type three civilizations. Type one is kind of here on earth uh, where we are now. We kind of can do things on the planet. You're not really versed on anything else. You consciously, we can lie to each other and get away with it. Type two civilizations get more into the telepathic area where there's less lying, and that becomes more of a real uh, domino effect where the beings work in a greater unit. They use much greater energies. They can travel multiple galaxies with their technologies. They put together um, robotics, biobots, um, whatever you want to call um surrogates, etc., that work for them that would be very alien to us. And hence, you might have worker bees like the greys that sometimes not that there's not beings from whatever you want to call it, zeta reticula, etc. Then you got type three civilization. This was described by Nikolai Kartajal back in the 1960s. He came up with these type zero through three civilizations and Michio Kaku and other scientists and I myself as a researcher looked at it and, and it makes a lot of sense where type three civilizations are more beings that definitely work as a unit but are also respective of separate and separate IDs as well and that they can come and go as they want to different galaxies wormholes type twos can do that as well type threes are more into like how we create um gardens and we procreate we have the innate ability that we want to create whether it's music or art or things like that that's part of our connection to the, to the universal creative source that's our essence well these beings work on creation itself where they create planets and they seed planets with lesser beings working underneath them doesn't mean any better or any worse but Ultimately, when you start getting into creative and you want to be more and more creative, as you gain more and more consciousness and more connection to the source, you're starting to create different aspects of different things called perhaps life. I don't want to say they're giving life, but the animation of life may come from another universal source that's all around us constantly. It's just a matter of what frequency you can connect with it kind of like an objective light type of thing that might be the essence of everything, everywhere and every wind. Right. Type three civilizations are beyond time. They, you know, and source is beyond time as well. It's not like, oh, well, who created God or who created source? That's thinking in 3D, you know, realm. That's from point A to point B. What if it just is? And then it's always the infinity. It's always creating. And as it slows its frequency down, you get other dimensions and you get more dense dimensions and you get more separation until you go back to an infinity loop and eventually we become time travelers i think priscilla and i think some of us right now are coming back in time in various timelines and working with ets and some of the et abductions that we think like dr bruce goldberg uh, put together um on his regressive hypnosis works that some of these abductions are actually us working with ets to make sure there's definitely fertilization and materials to work with in the future you know, there's a lot of things going on in my humble opinion and that's that interesting the end of my slideshow wow that is a that's a I, it was a great slideshow and it is because it still exists so i hate saying was um but do you have time for a few questions because there's some questions here from the chat that are uh really interesting to me that i didn't really think of yeah, I yeah, and uh, if you have questions yourself, oh I yeah, absolutely, more than welcome to try absolutely. to answer. Again, I no different than anybody else. Maybe just awakening and 
certain understandings of certain things with my experiences and viewings and things like that, but I can try to answer some questions. Absolutely. Um, so the I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to start from the top, guys. Somebody asked about when you were remote viewing Mars, if anybody had, well, this is the question. I, this is, I'm kind of combining my question and theirs. You know, did anybody describe Mars as being empty at the moment or at the moment while you were doing the... Uh, you know, that's a good, that, again, these are good questions. When I'm on in these shows like this, there's a lot of curious people and they have good questions. What we saw was what we were targeting those three okay. potential targets targets 1a 1b 1c okay. that you saw there like a dome-like figure and if you look at one of those figures real quick there was um one of them was like a water spout type of thing um i don't know if we want to go back to that it would be real quick I and mean, we can go back real quick here see. And oh. see where we're at with that yes right here like targets 1a this is some type of a water propulsion thing, some type of energy, liquid, something coming out of that. That that's we didn't oh, see, I see. I we see. didn't know anything about this. We were blind. For all we know, we okay. could have been targeted the Eiffel Tower. We, we don't know <laughs> what we were doing, but that's how remote viewing works. We'll call it, we were blind to the target, but all talented viewers and several of the Max military remote viewers were part of this project and that's what we got. You know, this goes underground and there's water that's being circulated underground and coming above the ground. Definitely workers there, definitely dome areas, definitely underground, whatever you want to call it. This could be also construed. I remember there's the old face on Mars type of thing from the Vikings right. in 1976 that was initially okay. taken. This is not that area, but this is similar to that. It's some type of a dome-like feature and there's something, you know, it's you know, there, there were pyramid type things as well in the uh close to the uh the face on mars type of thing all i know is at the moment you know we could have said well we're looking at something in the future well it was this was the target though this was kept in right the, um the whatever you want to call it, that we do when we do remote viewing usually they just put it in a paper and we put like target coordinates two sets of four numbers on the top of it and that's it. That's all. We we were not there. I did this viewing at home. Most of us just did this viewing, structured viewing, structured targets. But we all did them on our own. It had to be within a short period of time. And then we just faxed in or mailed in our data. And that was it. And we all came up with we all came up with the same thing. So that was at that current time or whatever year this was that JPL and NASA took these pictures. That's what we got as far as what was going on. So was it barren? If that was Mars, I can't say 100% sure it was Mars, but that's what the target was. And that this is what we got. And all of us got pretty much the similar data. That's very interesting. And a lot of that will happen too in uh, like shamanic journeys um, using like entheogenic plants or, you know, dream work, travel work. Um, that like a lot of people will enter under the influence in so, of some sort of plant medicine and right. then they right. all see the same thing so that's that's, a, an, that's very yeah. similar um to uh, in strangeness to me that yeah. how would everybody see the same yeah. how would we it, enter each other's vision right? it just can't be right right so i want to clarify one thing because i have heard um before i get to steph's question i wanted to i've heard mediums and and, and people kind of say, well, I remote viewed um, where somebody passed away or it was, you know, a scene of a crime or so what it, what is, 
And you mentioned this in your book in depth, but real quickly, what's the difference between remote viewing and somebody being able to communicate with uh, spirits or to go and sort of travel to see crime scenes or places where things have happened and kind of view those areas? Yeah, um, I don't know if there's an easy answer to it. It's kind of like the out-of-body experience in remote viewing. Or what's the difference? I'll start with that first. Mm-hmm. Astral travel is actually like when you're actually leaving the body and you still have some semblance of that physicality that you're out and about and you can actually see things that are around you in the process of getting there. Remote viewing is when your subconscious aspect of being, again, there's no definitive answer on it, per se, but when that's like an antenna bringing the information back and you're recording it. Um, there's an aspect of you that's that not sense. astral traveling, but picking up maybe like that electron interface or twin telepathy type of thing, where okay. you're bringing that information back. Where going to a scene as a medium might be more, or an astral uh, body experience might be more of an astral travel. It's okay. kind of a play on words. You might actually be saying there may be a closer, you know, proximity to all these things than we really understand. And there might be something like Jacques Vallée said, right. the expansion of consciousness is, you know, traversing through time and space. Those are just, you know, play fields where the consciousness is beyond that and it brings back the information as it traverses through time Mm. and space that's a very interesting way to think about it well thank you Um, i don't know how good of an answer that was but there's definitely some apples and oranges with it right but but there's the only way i can answer this how i know out-of-body experiences and no remote viewing. I am not a medium like you know, partly what you are and what you do, so I don't right. have that perspective to really um, to to elaborate. Right, right. From my experience, that when I've done a little bit of remote viewing practice, it's kind of like remote viewing isn't as interactive as if I was um, viewing somebody's home and kind of seeing like where there might be a source of, cause I've had people say like, Hey, something's weird in my home right. um, in only one room. And I will, well, let me, I'll look at the room, but I've never thought of it. Um, you know, so you, you do see that location, but you know, the location in most cases. Uh, so I, I don't, it's, it's yeah. a complicated question, but it yeah, is. that was and one of my questions. Like, what is the difference? You know, <laughs> yeah, remote viewing has that target. That's where you're going. Okay. That's right. From. I would okay. say this though, as you learn and become, if one were to become an established remote viewer, there are what's called movement exercises where oh, once wow. you get to that target, you can go you know, 10 feet away and describe it do 360 around it and describe it. But the gist of remote viewing, like phases one through three, there's five right. phases of scientific yep. remote viewing, basic scientific remote viewing, is to just bring the information back of a target right. and go from there. But you can go into more depth. And we did right. that a bit with the Mars Project. Okay, very interesting. And you have, and he has one of the, in his book, in, in Tony's book, he has the a great breakdown of this step-by-step of remote viewing, scientific remote viewing. Um, and I think that it's one of the, the most clean cut and simple protocol lists that I've met for, read for it. So thank you for that. And be sure you check it out when you get his book, because if you're somebody that's curious about it, 
but you don't want to read like a whole book in within his book there's a great chapter on this and then he does case he talks about different instances like he does like he did in the slides but in more depth um the next question is going to be you do have a part um in your book about and you speak a little bit about genetics and um and different types of ways that our genetic material may have gotten here and you talk a little bit about uh, junk DNA, and then you talk a little bit about panspermia. So today, if we were looking for something um, to kind of tell us, hey, like this might be like alien DNA, or then um, Steph asks, does he know what alien DNA would show up as? Or do you have any ideas? Or have you come across anything like that? Where What are we looking for um, when it comes to well, alien DNA? <laughs> Again, that's a sophisticated <laughs> question. There. Of course, um, it's Steph. She always asks the sophisticated yeah. questions. Let me Thanks, say, Steph. first of all, panspermia is the idea that, you know, maybe life arrived here from another um, extraterrestrial source, whether it's a meteorite or a comet that crashed here with microbiology life, and somebody can take it from there. A comet, obviously, is mostly water. An asteroid is mostly rock. A meteor is mostly metals, but they all interchange with each other. But one of the three each has its own predominant part. So panspermia is something from outside coming into Earth or somebody sending it to Earth and starting. As far as DNA and alien DNA, I, in my opinion, after looking at this for a while, I think we have a lot of DNA that's not used, a lot of junk DNA that's not used. I think at as we learn more about this and we start exploring the DNA and maybe some of the junk DNA, and we start somehow using it, you know, like some people might be a medium, naturally gifted. I think they're using an aspect of this DNA to be able to do these type of things. I think we all have in this third dimension this certain amount of DNA within us. It's just a matter of exercising or opening it up, somehow making it to where you're using it. It's kind of like a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it just atrophies and you know, but and the next thing you know, it just goes away. You're not, you don't have anything with it. I think the essence, that's why I teach remote viewing, the biggest thing is, you know, people say, well, what am I going to get out of it? The big thing is to get a gain of cognitive ability and intuitive ability. And then you start opening up the things like the sixth sense, gut feeling, third eye. And then you start noticing more synchronicity in your life. These things literally are always there. But when you open this up, you know, from an exercise standpoint, in this case, it's like scientific remote viewing, the basic scientific remote viewing, you awaken that and you start right. using it. So then you start noticing these things more. As far as alien DNA, you know, I've heard from different, you know, black project people and people that have worked, quote unquote, maybe even close with some ETs perhaps, or time travelers, that all of us have some interrelated DNA. It may not be as alien as we think. It's just a right. question of how much of our DNA, you know, there's 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, um, there's 20 billion, you know, et cetera, and it goes to 3 billion chemical-based pairs, et cetera, and it goes all, you know, it goes, it's unraveling, it's, it's a lot that's there we know a lot about it we know a lot more about it now than we did you know 25 years ago and francis crick came up with the dna molecule back in i think it was the early 50s and him and james watson worked on they won a nobel prize in the early 60s etc we know so much more about it now but how much of it do we know that's actually public 
and then how much of it can be tweaked, you know, action right. kind of thought is thought part of the process of awakening. Once you awaken a certain amount of stuff that's dormant, are you then starting a snowball effect for other things that are dormant? Right. You know, how, how I think the human beings right now, if we went back in time right now to, you know, 10,000 years ago, depending on what beliefs are or, or a million years ago, and the intelligence that were there then, we would be aliens. And yet we're right. still on the same planet. Right. You know, it's like, you know, it's that old adage, you know, a, a worm is is only consciousness of its immediate surroundings. But when it becomes part of the fish's meal, which is in the water, the worm doesn't know anything about it. You know? Yes. And the fish has its own level of existence in the water, okay, which is alien to the worm. But that's alien to the bird. And when the bird swoops down and grabs the fish, the fish doesn't know anything about the bird until it becomes part of the bird. You know? Right. And so you've got these different levels of awareness and consciousness. And these are all things here on Earth, but they're alien to one another. I think as we use more of our DNA over the course of time, we open things up. And this may be a long period of time. Or maybe it's jump-started somehow. Maybe it's been going on. Maybe we've got crystal children and star children. I think that's part of the alien seed that's going on. I think we all have that. It's just a question of opening it up by whichever means it happens. And sometimes it happens through a technology, maybe some type of gravitational or centrifugal forces or magnetic fields can unlock something. Sometimes a person sees UFOs and all of a sudden they may have more psychic ability or they have right. more cognitions or things like that. It can be jump-started. It can be done in many different ways, I feel. We're very complex. That's why right. I feel we're all part of universal creative source, which, you know, maybe nothing, is, as I said earlier, maybe if we gain more in terms of the usage of who and what we are, the less alien anything is. Right. And, yeah, that's a great idea. And I, that makes a lot of sense. And I always ask, you know, like you said, it, I like how you said it might not be so alien, you know, um, People are always looking for something that stands out, but if they, if we are descendants of them or they're thus us from the future or even right. in another dimension, why would it be that different? Because we've even known that this is the periodic table. It makes everything in the universe as far as we can tell, right? So why yeah, would it be 118 known elements with 109 properties or whatever the heck it is, believe right. me, it's going to get a lot more sophisticated than that in another 50 years. I mean, right. we're doing things at a quantum level and we're working with nanotechnologies and that stuff is really dangerous. That's why I'm very objective about this as well, Priscilla. I mean, it's all good to know this, but you can't just come out with this. You just can't come out right. with it. You, know, you just can't say, oh, something doesn't exist to yes, it does exist overnight. That's why the groups and the people that I've talked to and some of them military, etc. This is a slow indoctrination process for the groups that do want it to come. Right. Out. You just can't shake the foundation like that overnight. And then there's powers right. that be that don't want it to change. And I understand where they're coming from too. You just can't give a bunch of children sticks of dynamite. You know, you just can't have all these energies. It's not just ETs. I mean, these ETs travel and they travel using energies that are way beyond, you know, a lot of right. people's understanding and comprehension. What if those energies get into quote unquote the wrong hands because we're still not consciously where we should be in coordination or in correlation with the energies that we would be using? We would self-destruct in a week. I think that's why 
advanced ETs would probably say, you know, they can go about it and be the star child and do all the things that they're doing in their end, but it can't just be overnight. We have to evolve yeah. consciously and be responsible enough for the technologies and the energies that are therefore coming with this absolutely learnings and understandings. And hopefully that makes some sense. I think it does because we see physiological effects happen with people um, either after their abductions, even if it's kind of just like a consciousness abduction, they, they come back into their body and they have physiological symptoms. And then we see people um, like the Falcon Lake case in Canada where he had burns on him because he got so close to the craft. So we, right. we have to be mindful of that as well. We see what radiation does to us and how yes. it mutates our genes and, it could be for better or worse for all we know. And that could be a reason they're staying away. We There's just so many different things that could be right. Uh, this is more of a comment or a compliment. So that's a great way to explain so normal people can understand. And that was earlier when you kind of broke down um, after the Jacques Vallée slide, you broke a lot of things down. So, so yes, that was a thank you for that. Um, I know that we Appreciate are past the, the hour. Time. We are yep. past the hour. I will not get to everybody's questions. Um, and you have... Um, let's see, why don't we ask one more? Can we do one more I'm question? Okay. So George and Steph have asked a couple of questions and, um, I'm trying to pick one. It's so hard. You let's touch on the USOs because that's something that's not talked about a lot. And George, um, you can message me or you can message Tony as well with the, with the other remote viewing questions too. Um, and this one, you talked about USOs, which is kind of, it's becoming more talked about, but you've probably ran into some information about hotspots, one of them being Catalina Island. Um, why do you personally believe that Catalina Island has a exponential amount of UAP and USO activity? Well, I mean, regardless of where the location is and whether it's Trinidad Island or out, out at sea, some islands we may not even know about at times or that appear at times and disappear at others. Um, I, I would say the the oceans with connections to USOs, there's probably just bases. I think there's bases and I think it's kind of like at times there's going to be more traffic in this particular space-time dimension than others. And they still may be using portals that are under the water but they might also have bases, you know, out in space. Or I just think they operate, in my humble opinion, at times more in some areas than others. Puerto Rico was a hot spot for a while, you know, the island of Puerto Rico. There's been different hot spots all over. Um, and I think there's a lot of mis and disinformation with these things as, as well. I don't have the exactness of why Catalina would be like that. I just think there's more underground, underwater bases than we probably are even thinking about. And I think these guys can go through time and space, some of them. I have a theory on some of this as well. Um, think about this. Uh, there have been sightings that are closely related, like um, in terms of locations, but they've been maybe 50 years difference, 40 years difference. I think it's the same craft. Only, you know, somebody else is seeing it 50 years later and it's doing a time jump. And for them, it's just a moment. And for us, it's 50 years and it's two different sightings. In reality, it's the same craft and just another moment of doing a time jump of time space. Think about that. 
Yeah, that, that makes sense as well. And I think we're all asking, I mean, Catalina Island is definitely interesting and people are studying it more and more. So thanks for your question, Steph. And I cannot ask any more questions tonight. I don't want to keep everybody too late. George, if you want to send me your questions, I can email them to Tony or you can email Tony as well. Um, and yes, uh, I just want to say thank you, Tony, for taking the time out of your night to come and talk to us and give your presentation. It was great. I encourage everybody to go get Ambassadors to the Stars um, and go check out his website. He offers so much in the fields of remote viewing. And again, we could have asked him questions all night. He's one of those people where we could have been here all night just <laughs> picking your brain. So I will definitely be emailing you because I still have a few things I wanted to ask you about, but um, there, it's going to be, I feel like they're going to be long answers. So I'm going to email you some more questions and you can answer them when you want. But thank you for coming on. Thank you to everybody in the chat. You're welcome. Yeah. Is there that, anything that you have? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, it was my pleasure, uh, pleasure, Priscilla, for coming on and your viewers, George and Katz and everybody else that had interesting mm. questions. I thank all of you. Um, if anybody's interested in learning remote viewing, it's www.learnremoteviewing.net. Um, or if you have questions about anything, you can get a hold of me there through the contact page. I'm fine with that, and I'll get back with you. Um, but thank you, everybody, for sharing and taking the time. And um, it's all yours, Priscilla. Thank you so much, Tony. You have a great night. I'm just going to say bye to everybody. And um, I'm going to remove you from the screen. And if you want to hang out for a minute, I will, um, I'll talk to you really fast backstage when I'm done. Thanks again, everybody, for joining me tonight. It's so great to be back and having all these um, amazing guests lined up. I'm talking uh, to a lot more guests for November, and I'm trying to get uh, a diverse array of people, not just UFOs. I'm looking more into people working with consciousness, um, holding different pieces of the puzzle that could help us understand the phenomenon more. If you're listening on Anomalous, Anomalous Podcast Network, thank you so much. Please leave your your comments and ratings and check out the links because this was a very photographic presentation. So if you're listening to audio only, make sure you click on the YouTube link um, and check it out there. Thank you to, I'm going to Justin, Kat, Curious George. I saw Laura in there, Steph, and I see Grandmaster and everybody that is in the chat, uh, Justin, Thanks again. Your support means everything to me. Share this and do the like, subscribe stuff. And I will see you guys next week and have a great night.